What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 143 of the Adult Education Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with author and investigative journalist Gary Taubes. Thanks for checking out the show. I, uh, I just appreciate you sharing some of your day with me. If this is your first time listening to the Adult Education Podcast, welcome to the family. Love to have you here. I'd love it if you would subscribe to the show so you're updated for all future episodes. And always feel free to reach out and connect with me. The best way to do that is probably through Instagram. We are at Adult Education Podcast. You can see when new episodes are posted and you can DM me with any comments, questions, and suggestions for future topics or guests. I always love to hear from folks. This conversation was an interesting one, and it's kind of the point of why I do this podcast. So I like to learn stuff. I like to find out new information and educate myself, hopefully to make myself a little bit better. I saw this new book by Gary Taubes and wanted to check it out. It's called Rethinking Diabetes, What Science Reveals About Diet, Insulin, and Successful Treatments. Now, full transparency here. I don't agree with everything Gary says and everything that he finds in his research. Now, I'm not a nutritionist and I'm not a scientist, so what do I know? But I do have my own thoughts and opinions about some things. And right out of the gate in this conversation, we dive right into that idea. Gary talks about one of my more recent guests on the show, Michael Greger, and how the two of them are on opposite sides of the spectrum on things, specifically when it comes to the foods that we should eat. Then we start talking about how research and nutrition can often have different outcomes. And it's true. Sometimes a researcher can go into a project trying to prove a point, And what a surprise when they prove themselves right. Now, while we don't agree on everything when it comes to diets, I did find this book by Gary Taubes fascinating because it opened my eyes to the history and the progression of diabetes here in America. Gary goes all the way back to the beginning and gives us a deep look at how diabetes went from this rare condition to where we are now with approximately 10% of the country being diagnosed with it. That's wild. Did you know? 10% of the country has been diagnosed with diabetes. That is a massive number. So how do we get here? What are we doing to stop it? Or are we doing anything to stop it? This conversation and this book left me fascinated and also so mad at the same exact time. Uh, so I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gary Taubes. Gary, how are you? I'm good. Good. Good, man. Thank you. I, first, I just want to say I apologize for the confusion of last week. Life just kind of Got a little crazy for me, so I appreciate you pivoting and uh, postponing for today for me. Uh, that's perfectly okay. I mean, I screw up all the time, so <laughs> it's always delighted to see other people with conflicts and makes me feel better about my own inadequacies. <laughs> One thing I haven't done well is I, for whatever reason, I, I need to I need to hold on to a physical calendar. I can't really do digital calendars very well, although my wife loves them. So she puts things in the calendar that I never see because I never look at the digital calendar. And then I'm like, oh, I have to go do this today. Got it. <laughs> I don't know if you want me to mention this. I noticed that you just did Michael Gregor. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Michael and I are on the sort of opposite spectrum of nutrition advice. <laughs> so uh, ultimately, I'm kind of arguing, I mean, easiest way to follow the advice I think people who suffer from obesity and diabetes should follow is to eat a basically animal-based diet, not a mostly planned diet, not a vegan diet or a vegetarian. I mean, it's possible to do it, but all my research, which is significant, leads to this idea that if you want to reverse obesity and diabetes, you've got to avoid carbohydrates. And since plants are mostly carbohydrates and animals are protein and fat, it's just a lot easier to do with animals. Not as good for the animals, I acknowledge. Not as good for the environment. <laughs> but um, so we are really um, 
we're very much on different sides of the spectrum. Sure. Um, which is a problem. When, as soon as you step into nutrition, you find that people give antithetical recommendations and do it with total certainty that they're right. Yeah, I mean, and, I think that's what I find so fascinating about it is that you can do so much research and still come out with different sort of results the way you look at it and the way that you have a perspective. Like you just said, some people come in with absolute certainty that they're right, but there maybe, yeah, I mean, sure, they might have points that are correct and they might have seen research that does point them in that direction, but the absolute certainty, it's, it's always tough to find that. You know, my background was in hard science and investigative journalism. So I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nutritionist, but I know good science from bad science. I know what it takes to establish reliable knowledge in any science. And the problem with nutrition is you can't really do the studies to test people's hypotheses. So you have a lot of hypotheses without, you know, science, if nothing else, is hypothesis and test. Like mm -hmm. you get an idea, you want to know if you're right. You really want to know if you're right. So you got to test it and test it and test it and test it. And you keep assuming that you're wrong until you can figure out how to do a test that'll show you how you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of back into this idea that, okay, I'm going to accept my hypothesis right because I can't disprove it. I can't refute it. You can't do those tests in nutrition. So right. people just, they get an idea. And they like it and they find the evidence that seems to support it. And then they say they're right and they go from there. And the longer they hold it, the more books they write, the more we dig in, you know, we dig into our positions. If I had a criticism of my book, Rethinking Diabetes, which is this like incredibly well-referenced historical analysis, I would say, well, Gary, you went in with a bias and everything you found supported your bias. Isn't that a surprise? <laughs> it's great how that works out, doesn't it? Uh, well, Gary, yeah. I, I, I am recording here. So I, I do think there is something, though, to start with how you found yourself diving into this world. Because as you just mentioned to me, you, I think you started in physics, you were a scientist, you're an investigative reporter. So how do you find yourself in this world of health? Because this is not your first book in nutrition and health. You've done other books prior to this. How did you find yourself in this world? Okay, so my first two, well, I did have a physics background in college, um, went to journalism school, needed a job that would keep me in New York City where my girlfriend lived. <laughs> so I became a science writer. I had this physics background. It seemed natural. Turned out that there's a lot of um, very questionable science done, just like any other. There are good plumbers and bad plumbers. There are good electricians and bad electricians. There are good computer coders and bad. There are good scientists and bad scientists. I wanted to be an investigative reporter, so I started asking questions about the quality of the science I was supposed to be writing about. So my first two books ended up being books about bad science. Mm -hmm. So the first one was, I was in, we today would say I was embedded with uh, 150 physicists in an experiment outside Geneva, Switzerland, where they discovered non-existent fundamental particles. So they claimed to have discovered something, they screwed up, and I spent 10 months living with these people, nine months, watching them realize how they had screwed up and how they were going to deal with the embarrassment of going public. So what I thought was going to be a book about this great discovery turned out to be an expose mm. about this world of physics. My second book was about the great scientific fiasco of the late 20th century, which was called Cold Fusion. Mm. And I, one of my favorite comments was from a 
historian of science who said, you did more research for the stupidest scientific subject than any human being alive. But in doing that, you learn about good science and bad science. It's a very specific themes. Like you could probably say the same about good plumbers and bad plumbers. Like the good ones approach their job with certain belief systems and the bad ones don't. And you find this is true of science. After the cold fusion book, some of my friends in the physics community said, if you're interested in bad science, you should look at the stuff in public health. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. And so I moved into public health. This was the 1990s. And by the end of that decade, I had sort of stumbled into the nutrition world. And I did a couple of award-winning investigations for the journal Science, where I'd spent nine months and a year, and respectively, on, on different nutrition-related stories. And this just led me into that this first one was whether salt causes high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. We should be eating a low-salt diet. And weirdly enough, the evidence for that is terrible. And the second is was dietary fat and heart disease. And the evidence for that, weirdly enough, is terrible. Again, if I had a critic, they would say Taub sees bad science everywhere he looks. So the fact that he does an investigation and claims that the science is bad is not surprising. It doesn't mean he's right, though. But anyway, from there, I, I moved into the obesity field and chronic disease. And I've been doing that since uh, 2001 and in an infamous New York Times Magazine cover story that was photo of a very greasy looking porterhouse steak with a pat of butter on it. Headline was, what if fat doesn't make us fat? My Now my fifth book on this subject. Uh, along the way, I did more research than any human being alive, in part because the internet came along and allowed us to get every primary source or identify every primary source. So if you want to do the kind of research I did, you would have had to live in at the Library of Congress and medical mm -hmm. school libraries, and it would have taken, you'd be down there with your computer and quarters for these Xerox machine, <laughs> and it would take decades. The internet collapsed that down. So what I could do in five years from 2002 to 2007 in my first book was what would have taken half a lifetime pre-internet. And for this latest book, what I did in three years would have, wasn't even doable just 20 years ago, because now we have all these internet repositories from Google Books to others where you can get a hold of virtually every, so even I, I have eight, maybe 10 editions of the primary diabetes textbook, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, six of them I bought, and four of them are available online. The older ones are all available online. Um, so you just couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. And you would have found a library that had all those editions. <laughs> but it, it, so it's sort of the world has changed, and uh, one time journalist turned historian can do something no one's ever done. Well, I love the, the historian part of this because I. I think we're so accustomed to hearing words like diabetes and obesity now, but learning more through your work about the history of it and how how much it's changed over the last even just 100 years. But I, I do want to play devil's advocate and sort of light this fire here. And, and I wonder, like, why do we have to have this conversation? Because haven't pharmaceutical companies just solved the diabetes crisis anyway with drugs like <laughs> Ozempic and all that stuff? I mean, that's all we hear now is they've solved everything with these drugs. Well, and that's... <laughs> and you know, it's a legitimate question. 
even the kind of criticisms I make of how we treat diabetes, the one response will be to that, well, the next generation of drugs are going to be even better. Mm. The next generation of devices, if you have type 1 diabetes, which is the, the infrequent acute version of the disease, this usually strikes adolescents and children. It's an insulin deficiency disease that can vary quickly dangerous. These patients need insulin, the hormone insulin, to, to live and to thrive. They can now get their insulin through these pumps that can be connected to you know, monitors that measure their blood sugar, and they can be communicating through Bluetooth, mm-hmm. and they could have AI programs installed, or if they can't yet, they will within another year or two, that will very subtly you know, secrete insulin into their bodies as necessary. I mean, it's remarkable technology. But the problem is we have these, first of all, there are long-term consequences to every drug therapy. Mm -hmm. They may, the short-term consequences may be that you don't die, and so they're beneficial. But um, we have uh, uh, diabetes epidemics. So as I discuss in the book, um, you know, 100 years ago, maybe one in 300 Americans was living with diabetes. Now it's, the estimate is one in nine. Uh, mm. 30 million diagnosed cases, another eight, nine million people have the disease and don't know it. Um, the cost to the medical says one in every four healthcare dollars goes to treating diabetes and its complications. Uh, estimate is $400 billion a year, which is... 300 billion in direct medical costs and 100 billion in lost productivity. I mean, that's more than a billion dollars a day. Um, and many of these people are not doing well. And they're, the message that they're being told for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes is a common form that is, we're more likely to get as we get older and we get heavier. So it associates with obesity. Belief system is it's a chronic progressive disease. So you have it for life once you're diagnosed, and it's only going to get worse. That's what they mean by progressive. So it's going to, it's, um, uh, it's going to get worse. Your ability to control your blood sugar is going to get worse. So uh, there's a sort of a lip service to the idea that you can control it in the beginning with diet, but eventually you're going to need drugs, and then you're going to need more drugs and more drugs. And if it's pretty severe, when diagnosed, you're going to be started on insulin therapy immediately, which means you go into your doctors, they do a blood test, they say, your hemoglobin A1C level is above 10%, and we're going to teach you how to inject this drug insulin, mm-hmm. and that's how you're going to control it. And your life changes immediately, and all these drugs do have complications and consequences for taking them. They don't make the patient healthy. They make the patient less unhealthy. And they delay this progressive, unhealthy uh, uh, pathway that they're heading down. So there are enormous costs to these diseases. There's an enormous burden to the individuals who live with them even as they are doing better now than they would have ever done in the past. Um, And when you look at the history of how we treat these diseases, which is what I did and how we think about them and conceive about them, it turns out that there were these sort of enormous assumptions that were embraced as facts that were never tested. 
by the 1970s and 1980s, as medicine moved into what's called the evidence-based medicine era. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you go to the doctor, you get diagnosed, you, he prescribes something or intervenes with some surgical procedure. There's randomized controlled trial evidence to show that the the method of diagnosis is correct and the prescription is the best thing for you or the surgery is the best thing for you. And it turns out that these assumptions about diabetes were sort of grandfathered in during this period. So there was this whole belief system that we should focus on drugs that people should get to eat whatever they want. They should be allowed to eat freely. We shouldn't really tell them any otherwise because that'll be a problem. And we just have drugs to treat all these complications and the complications are profound. That's what I find so fascinating about this history is that, look, I don't think anybody wakes up any day and says, boy, I really hope that I have diabetes. But I don't think that there's a fear of it this, the way that there probably should be. And maybe fear is not the right word, but I don't think that there's this thing in people's minds of going like, man, if I get diabetes, that's going to be a problem. They're like, it's fine. There's plenty of treatments for it. I don't think I have to worry about it. Well, I think that's partially it. I, you know, I don't have a lot of experience in this, only you know, myself and my immediate family. I think people fear cancer sure. diagnosis. And we fear like dropping dead from a heart attack someday, especially if you eat like I do. Um, but something like diabetes, um, I don't know, maybe if diabetes runs in your family, then I have actually had patients with diabetes tell me as much. If diabetes runs in your family, you either fear it or expect it, mm -hmm. and then your anxiety level is dependent on how well your family members uh, were able to cope with this disease and keep it under control. If they died early, then you are going to be anxious that you die. You will die early if they kept it under control for a lifetime, then you assume you can. Um, but other than those people who have a real family history of the disease, no, it's not something that, we, that, that keeps us up at night. And one of the issues with my book is we don't, the, the, the numbers are tragic. So 70 years ago, 60 years ago, early 1960s, when the first federal surveys are done, not even 2 million Americans were diagnosed with diabetes. Now, the diagnostic criteria was different. Uh, you would have had to have a much more severe form of the disease to be diagnosed. But still, it was roughly, you know, one and a half, two million Americans. And today, it's like I said, 30 million, another 10 million who have it but don't know. Mm -hmm. um, dramatic increase, even type 1 diabetes, which has always been a very easy diagnosis because it's such a dramatic uh, disease. Um, the prevalence of type 1 diabetes has probably doubled or tripled since 1960. Mm. So these diseases, are they, they've gone from being very rare disease. In the 19th century, uh, major urban hospitals could go a year without seeing a case. Um, today, in some hospital systems, the veteran administration system, for instance, one in four patients have diabetes. Mm. I mean, it's 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 tragic, and yet we don't talk about it. It's we argue about vaccines for the COVID epidemics, and and, and we're worried about the next infectious disease epidemics. But we're having this, we're being submerged under this chronic disease epidemic, and we don't talk about it or do anything. Well, that's interesting that you say that because I, I feel like we talk a lot about things like obesity and diabetes, but I don't think people take it seriously. Like you said, I think people fear cancer. I think people fear 
AIDS. I think they fear diseases like that. But when you talk about like, wow, we have an obesity epidemic, everyone's like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to Five Guys later today and getting a burger. Like they don't. They, <laughs> it's not. I don't think it's something that people hear and it sinks in because it's almost like. Um, it's like when you talk about somebody who's, you know, smoke like a smoker that will eventually get cancer and die. I think that's what obesity is to a lot of people. It's an eventual thing. Like there's no instant result when you see it. Like you don't oh, get you don't, yeah. yeah, you don't get overweight and die like immediately. Like you get overweight and then the health things change as you get older and you probably lose years of your life, but you don't see it immediately. And so I don't think people take it seriously despite the fact there is a conversation happening. Yeah, no, you're right. We hear an enormous amount about obesity. And, and more recently with these new drugs, these, these like Wagobi, semiglutide, yeah. these, these GLP-1 agonists that are so remarkable at producing weight loss. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. So the, 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 the conventional thinking is diabetes is type 2 diabetes, which is 90 to 95% of all cases, is so closely associated with obesity that diabetes specialists have always assumed that it's more or less caused by obesity or caused by the overeating that causes obesity. And because they've never been able to get people to successfully lose weight, they assume that this is all sort of beyond control. You know, the guy you just described, I don't care about the obesity epidemic, I'm 50 pounds overweight and I'm going to five guys later. The conventional thinking is nobody sticks with the diet anyway, right. and the more restrictive the diet, the less likely they are to stick with it. Although getting back to Michael Greger, you could push a vegetarian or a vegan diet, and it's perfectly fine, and nobody says, yeah, but you won't comply. Anyway, so there's all these assumptions made about the, the link between personal behavior and lifestyle and obesity and then obesity and diabetes, so, and then the, we blame the food industry for putting out all these uh, salty, fat, sugary snacks that we can't say no to. And uh, ultra-processed food is a new buzzword. Mm. This is supposed to be particularly terrible if the food has got many ingredients in their process. And we can't stop any of this, so let's just... And if a patient gets diagnosed with diabetes, he or she is not going to stop any of this anyway, so right. let's just let them do whatever they want, and we have drugs. That's always the solution. We have drugs. We have drugs for the blood sugar. We have drugs for the blood pressure. <laughs> we have drugs for the kid. You know, we got dialysis for the kidney failure. We got, hey, we can amputate your limbs if you get neuropathy, no problem. We have laser surgery for the the the, the retinal problems that will arise. Um, and if you go blind, we have guide dogs. Um, there's no place along the way where people stop and say, and the American Diabetes Association, the NIH, have no mechanism by which to say, wait a minute, you're telling me diabetes prevalence increased 600% in 60 years. It went from a rare disease to a common disease, so common that you can't even watch a football game, NFL football, without seeing advertisements for diabetes drugs. Well, where else would you advertise those? I mean... You know, and I'm a football fan, but like that's I feel like that's the perfect place to advertise them. And you know, it's a good point actually, because your audience is they're they're drinking beer. Right. They're, <laughs> um, they're they they indeed are the perfect. I never thought of that, and I should have. It's my job. Um. <laughs> anyways, no one stops to say, "Have we made mistakes? Is this epidemic somehow our fault? Mm. Are we really serving our patients best by just prescribing more and more drugs and higher and higher doses, which is what we're told to do? Or is there another 
did we make mistakes along the way? Like, and I always had an ideal world with this circumstance, you would have um, uh, teams of the smartest researchers in the land, investigative teams, they'd be outside your house and outside my house in like hazmat suits, right? Trying to figure out what happened. Like, how did this mistake, how did we get here? where one in nine Americans suffer from a disease and we're, we're dominant therapy is pharmaceutical. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry benefits. Like when I suggested $400, $300 billion a year in direct medical costs, that's paid by the patients and the insurers to their doctors, to their diabetes educators, to the clinics, to the pharmaceutical companies, yeah. the device company. The only people who really are harmed by that are the patients and the insurers. And then the rest of us, because we our insurance premiums go up because we have to pay for their, you know, even if we don't have that, needs to be rethought. Yeah, I forget who I was talking with, but somebody pointed out to me in an interview once that, you know, if you're if you're getting drugs for something, you believe that you're getting the cure. Like for, I have asthma. I've had asthma my entire life. I have an inhaler. Like the the mental thing that I probably have is that I have an inhaler, I have a cure to asthma. But what that drug really is doing is just helping with the symptoms of the disease. So if you have diabetes and you're getting some sort of drug to help you with that, you're not being cured. You're just getting something to help you get through those you know, the different symptoms that you're going to feel from it. So that's, I, I feel right. like if more people thought about drugs in that perspective, they may change their whole perspective on the way that they live their life. Well, that's what I often wonder if um, one of the, the messages of this book is, so the, the prior to these obesity drugs, the most dramatic wonder drug, miracle drug that came along that's that's even a vague parallel to them is insulin itself, mm -hmm. which was discovered in 1921. So diabetes is believed to be a disorder of insulin deficiency. Uh, suddenly you, you can, these University of Toronto researchers banding and best in their colleagues, they, they purify, take pancreases and they purify insulin from them and they inject insulin into animals and patients and it lowers blood sugar and you've cured everything. And these kids are at the brink of death. I mean, emaciated children that look like they've, you know, been in concentration camps for years. Um, it, you know, literally within hours or days of dying can be given insulin and brought back to life in the terms they use and back then and still to some extent it's resurrected. It's mm -hmm. like a biblical experience to see how effective this drug was. So they start giving the drug to everyone. And, and until 1921, if you had a patient with diabetes, you told them, don't eat carbohydrate-rich foods, starches, sugars, grains, you know, because they're gonna, they, your body can't metabolize mm -hmm. safely. So the only way to really stay healthy and stay alive is not to eat them. And then as soon as you have insulin, insulin lowers blood sugar, carbohydrates raise blood sugar. So now you create the disease of low blood sugar it didn't exist this condition didn't really exist until you have insulin back in the 20s it was seen as insulin shock or insulin overdose and you could kill people with the antidote to the disease insulin so now you have to tell people to eat carbohydrates so that the cure for their disease doesn't kill them. i mean it's you know on some level it made sense and then you find out especially with children that they want to eat like they're Frenzy sure. and being diagnosed with diabetes is, is a profoundly disturbing and disheartening thing to hear. Um, you don't want to go through life feeling like you're special, so let's let the kids eat what 
everyone else eats. It's bad enough they have this disease. We have this drug that will save them from their diet, in effect. And so we're going to let them eat. And then by the 1930s, they start seeing the consequences of letting children, well, of people living with diabetes for 10 or 15 years, type 1, which they never saw before because they, they couldn't prevent death. And then seeing what happens living with diabetes and insulin therapy and these ever more carbohydrate-rich diets that they were letting people eat, it turns out that the consequences are terrible. After 10, 15 years, these kids are getting all the side effects of or the complications of diabetes, heart disease, mm. nerve failure, kidney nerve damage, kidney failure, they're bone blind. Um, kids were diagnosed at 12 and saved from the brink of death at 13 are now dying at 28, which is still tragic. Nobody ever really addresses this issue because they've kind of forgotten that there was another way to treat this disorder which is, and this was phrased to me best by a journalist who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was 36 years old. This is about six years ago. And he said, you know, you're diagnosed, you're dropped into this world of this disease. You've never thought about diabetes before. Suddenly you're a patient. Your doctor tells you, look, you've got this disorder where you don't have enough insulin and your body can't safely process the carbohydrates in so we're going to give you back the insulin and ask you to eat a diet of 50% carbohydrates. And he says to them, wait a minute, you're telling me that because I have diabetes, carbohydrates are now toxic to me, and insulin is the antidote, and I should eat the toxin and take the antidote as opposed to just not eating the toxin? And he said, well, my doctor just wanted me to be healthy. He didn't think I could go through life not eating carbohydrates. I mean, they're everywhere, right? How could you have a dinner without pasta or sure. rice or potato? Um, but this kid, guy, 36 years old, is like, well, wait a minute. I mean, I want to be healthy. I don't want to eat the poison and take the antidote. I want to not eat the poison. That's like choice number one. And it sounds absurdly simple. And yet, because of the way we've thought about this disease for 100 years, it's like we're so focused on giving people the antidote or other antidotes, like Wagobi is an antidote to whatever's causing the obesity. Let's just let them, nobody wants to go on a diet, so let's just assume, eat the poison, take the drug, take the antidote. And this book is the best job I could do. I hope it's good enough to convince people that this is not particularly a rational way to look at it. It doesn't seem rational. And at least for, yeah, and for many patients, they should be given this choice. They should understand the choice. And there's another, a, a doctor in Montreal, Evelyn Bordeaux-Roy, who I interviewed for my last book, who said when she sits down with patients, she says, look, I, I could give you pills or I could teach you how to eat. Mm -hmm. You know, which do you want? Yeah. And then I, the only thing I would add is when you give pills, I, I'm going to talk to you about the side effects of the pills, <laughs> the possible complications, what happens if you can't afford them or your insurance stops covering them or the side effect profile changes with age as they often do. I'm curious if with you and your asthma inhaler, has your dose or um, medication changed over the years because 
Yeah, I mean, off and on, and I've I've always been an overweight person. Uh, I've I've gone up and down at times, you know, been lower and higher uh, at various times in my life, and uh, so my asthma has also come and gone. I, I will say that about three years ago, fuck, gosh, it's twenty twenty four now. About four years ago, I gave up all dairy, and I will say within about two weeks, I stopped using all of my inhalers and didn't have to use them for months. Um, and the thought had never crossed my mind because I'm not a doctor. What would I, what do I know about all this stuff? But I had a doctor that was like, just give it a try and see what happens. And it was like a game changer overnight for me was getting rid of And And like you just said, you could have a doctor that say, I can give you pills or I can give, teach you how to eat. If I had had doctors when I was younger saying, Hey, maybe, maybe there's something with something you're eating that's impacting the way your body is working. I would have eliminated that thing a long time ago. You know what I mean? Like it's well, not, is- it's not that important to me to drink a, gl- a cup of milk, you know, if I could breathe. Okay. Like I'd rather breathe than have cheese with my sandwich. You know what I mean? Well, this is the advantage the, the example I used in my last book, which was called case for keto. A title I don't love, but it is what it is. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, I was allergic to corn. Okay. I was allergic to all grains, uh, but corn was worse. And we got my allergy tests and the doctor said, you're allergic to corn. And I stopped eating corn. I didn't go on a corn-free diet or a corn-restricted diet. It's like I didn't eat corn because when I ate corn, I had gastrointestinal issues that were quite painful and I didn't want to deal with. And I've, I don't eat corn 60 years later because when I do, I know what will happen. Mm-hmm. So part of the message here is, I mean, again, with with diabetes, because it's it's a whole food group, we've created a whole, I mean, there there, there are all these thought constructs that say, because for instance, one of the diagnoses, one of the criteria of an eating disorder is avoiding a whole food group. Mm-hmm. So by that definition, uh, vegetarians and vegans are have an eating disorder because they don't eat meat, and people eat like I do have an eating disorder because we don't eat carbohydrates. But the reason I don't eat carbohydrate-rich foods is because I don't want to get fat, and they make me fat. And if they make me fat, they'll probably make me diabetic also. But it ultimately comes down, and this is where, you know, I think Michael Greger and I would agree. Like the dairy suggestion to you, and I actually gave up dairy about 10 years ago because somebody suggested it to me for a particular issue I was having. And much to my dismay, that issue went away. <laughs> like, damn, because I like cheese. Sure. Who doesn't? <laughs> you know, I, milk I could live without, but cheese and good cheese. Yeah. What's interesting is I'll still, if I go to Europe, for instance, to give a lecture or something, I will, when I'm there, I'm going to eat cheese and I'm just going to deal with the consequences because it's worth it. But at least I know now that the consequences are a result of the cheese. Ultimately, all of these things become self-experimentation. Mm-hmm. One of them, it's ultimately the argument I'm making for diabetes. Is, oh, I want doctors to understand the trade-off, the pill versus diet. I want them to understand what teaching them how to eat means in this context. Um, that's my last book, The Case for Keto, was an attempt to teach people how to think about this. And I want them to be able to say to patients when they're diagnosed, look, there are two paths you could go down and maybe compromises between them, but one is the pill path and one is the eating path. And we think if you do the eating path, we have copious evidence now from randomized controlled trials that if you do this path and you do it correctly, you will see enormous benefits. Mm-hmm. And if you do the pill path, it's going to be a chronic progressive degenerative disease, but we got drugs. 
trust us, we can handle it. Depends how you pitch it. Context is always everything, right? But that's um, I mean, even for you, if you're if you're struggling with your weight, read my last book, The Case for Keto, mm. which you get back on the phone and try. I mean, we've been taught that these diets where you restrict carbohydrates and replace the calories with fat, so they're animal product rich in general. Um, because animals are made of pro what you want to do is avoid carbohydrates because your body can't metabolize them properly, safely, and instead eat protein and fat. And animals happen to be protein and fat. That's what we are made of. So <clears throat> if you're eating animal products, it's a very easy thing to eat as these diets. I mean, you could argue that we evolved over millions of years to live on animal product-rich diets and alternative, like for instance, you can try going vegan or vegetarian and just see what happens. You know, that's the thing. Give it I think two months is probably enough to see if you're really benefiting. It gets messy because now both diets will tell you that Michael Berger and myself will both tell you to avoid like refined ultra processed foods sure. and sugar. So you're getting rid of the worst of the carbohydrates and maybe the worst of the fats. I'm not sure about that by avoiding the center aisles of the supermarket. And so you're likely to benefit from both approaches just because of that. It's something you can do as an experiment and oh, see sure. what happens. If you're ailing and the taking the pills thing is either too expensive for you or you know, you're suffering the side effects. I mean, taking five, I was speaking to a, a woman the other day with diabetes, mother of one of mine. 14 or 15 year olds basketball colleagues and we were at a game and she's on five medications for her nice. diabetes if you don't want to do that then we can teach you how to eat and i'm pretty confident that'll work well gary i uh love this topic and i like i said before the, the history of it was so fascinating to learn because i knew nothing about just diabetes has always been in the world as far as i know right i, I know it's a lot worse now than it ever has been but learning all of the history going back uh was just fascinating the book is called rethinking diabetes what science reveals about diet insulin and successful treatments uh we've barely scratched the surface of your work <laughs> in this book here in this conversation but i know that uh zoom is going to boot me off with you in a second so i wanted to make sure that i thank you before I just lost you here. But uh, but Gary, uh, seriously, thank you so much. Is there a place people can go if they want to find out more about you or learn more about your work? Well, my website, GaryTalbs.com, and I write a substack with my journalist friend and colleague, Nina Teigbeltz, and the substack is called Unsettled Science. And uh, Google, of course, although there you'll get people saying good things about me, terrible things. It's always a mixed bag on Google, isn't it? <laughs> well, thank you, Gary. I appreciate your time and I appreciate your work. Thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure. If you try the diet, let me know what happens. Yeah, I'll reach back out. I will. Big thank you to Gary Taubes for his time. His book, Rethinking Diabetes, What Science Reveals About Diet, Insulin, and Successful Treatments is available now wherever you get your books. It's a fascinating read, also very frustrating sometimes when you think about what we are not doing to try to stop the diabetes epidemic, but really interesting stuff here with this book, again, called Rethinking Diabetes. And thank you all for your time. Until next week, be well.